Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And this is the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. This is, I don't know if you knew this, but July here on Ain't It Scary is the month of Satan! Uh... Yeah, I mean, I knew it because I know our schedule, but I didn't realize we were declaring a month for him. <laughs> for H-I-M, all capitals. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, yeah, this is the month of Satan, or at least this is the month of the Satanic Panic here on Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Now, the Satanic Panic isn't a dancing plague, is it? Uh, no, but I wish. Like, that would have been a really good... Um, the Satanic Panic might not have been like an 80s uh electric slide type thing but it could have been a 60s locomotion type thing sure anywho that is not what we're talking about darn it's not the dance craze that took over the the halls of the late 1960s uh no the satanic panic is i don't know if it's gone away so much as just evolved but uh since the 19 early 1980s in the united states uh there have been I mean, for the whole 1980s, there was a, a real panic across the country that mm-hmm. Satanists were waiting to ensnare, corrupt, and, as we'll find out in this episode, rape um, the children of America. Ooh, well, yeah, uh, the Satanic Panic really has only changed in form. Um, it might not be Marilyn Manson anymore in that guise uh, because we've kind of gotten used to him and his shtick, but it just becomes different. Uh, so how did it start, Sean? Where did it begin? In the American consciousness, at least. In the American consciousness, because this idea, the idea of just accusing an outside group of monstrous acts of some kind to kind oh. of other them. We're going back to hysterias, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. This is a, obviously a form of hysteria. And check out our um, episode last week where Caroline gave me some great information about some fascinating historical hysterias. Mm-hmm. Historias, if you will. I will. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but yeah, this idea of we talked about the Salem witch trials, right? The, there's nothing new about the idea of picking some people who you don't like and going, yeah, but them. There's something weird about them, and then you... And that something weird means that they worship Satan. Well, you fill in the backstory to figure Mm -hmm. out why they're so weird, and eventually you get to something like this. Um, I'm going to take you into deep ancient history for a minute to... uh, Let's just explore the evolution of this idea, right? Throughout history, the Jews have had to deal with, um, obviously, persecution and hatred from basically every group that they were living near at any given time. Yes. Um, what's called blood libel. Oh, boy. Against the Jews. So we're starting anti-Semitic. We're starting at that point in the conspiracy. Well, sure. Usually it takes a little digging for it to get there. Oh, this was just a conspiracy that was just about, hey, Jewish people are murdering. Okay. These kinds of rumors go back at least to the historian Appian, who lived in Egypt in like 30 CE. Early stories involved Jews sacrificing Christian children or reenacting the crucifixion. Um, And these stories later would evolve in the, um, you know, 100s, 200s, 300s and on into stories of of how secret Jewish mystic cults needed Christian blood to bake their matzah. 
Well, that took a turn. I didn't expect the matzo to become involved. Oh, yeah. And by the time you get into later in the Middle Ages, you have this, there was a, a real trend from like 1100 to 1300 mm. of small boys oh. in coffins, dead boys in coffins, um, being made saints and martyrs, uh, usually on the basis that had they had been murdered by Jewish cults of some kind. Uh, this was what you call a trend? It was a craze, if you will. <laughs> there was a trend of small dead boys in coffins. Yeah. It was it was all the rage. And oh, boy. the first real big deal, one of these, was a boy named William of Norwich, who was probably not crucified in 1144. Um, his story was popularized in a pamphlet that was widely circulated called The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich, and this got the idea out there that Jewish people were out there crucifying Christians. Christian children. Christian children specifically. Um, and you saw a series of these over the next couple of centuries because the dead boys were always obviously laid in a sort of very special tomb where people could come and visit them and bring donations to the church. Oh. Mm-hmm. And so these were always great ways to make a little little extra money for the local clergy. All you need is a dead boy in a dream. This maybe reached its peak in 1255 with Little St. Hugh of Lincoln. Isn't that a Beach Boys song? Yes. The Little St. Hugh. They scourged him till the blood flowed. That's how Matthew Paris, monk and chronicler, began his account here. They scourged him till the blood flowed. They crowned him with thorns, mocked him, and spat upon him. Each of them also pierced him with a knife, and they made him drink gall, and scoffed at him with blasphemous insults, and kept gnashing their teeth and calling Jesus the false prophet. And after tormenting him in diverse ways, they crucified him, and pierced him to the heart with a spear. When the boy was dead, they took the body from the cross, and for some reason disemboweled it, it is said, for the purpose of their magic arts. Okay. He was a very well-read historian as much as you know you could be a historian at the time uh he was he was pretty well read and so that's the version of of accounts that's the version of the story that got around mm -hmm. that jewish people had uh tortured and murdered and crucified this boy um for fun and profit and question that, mark and then took his intestines out for some magical purpose you know like the jews do with heavy sarcasm, you say this. Yes, don't clip that out, please. <laughs> a Jewish man named Coppin, or Copin, C-O-P-I-N. This guy Coppin actually copped to the crime. <laughs> under torture, obviously, and with a promise of no sentence at all, no punishment, if he confessed to crucifying this little boy. Did they keep that promise? Well, I think they were going to. But then King Henry III arrived in Lincoln a month later and ordered Copin's execution. Ah, the old switcheroo. He said, oh no, I'm the king and I can do what I want. This guy, he, kill he killed that baby. He's got to go. Mm -hmm. Coppin definitely probably didn't kill that baby. He definitely probably didn't kill him. It was a long time ago, but I, I would guess that he did not yeah, kill that baby. Yeah, it was probably like, okay, I get it. Fine. Enough. No more torture. Henry also ordered the arrest of 90 Jews. Just because? Well, in the city. Well, because they were suspected of being involved in this conspiracy just by virtue of being Jewish. 
18 of them were executed for refusing to stand trial at all. They said, this is bullshit. I'm not going to do it. And okay, they chopped their heads off. Um, The rest of them were sentenced to death. But Christian monks, either the Dominican Brotherhood or the Franciscans, stepped in and put a stop to the execution. Maybe because they had time to kind of think about this case a little bit more Mm -hmm. and gone like, well, maybe 90 people don't need to die. Okay, good on the monks. That was the first time in history that a civil government had handed down a death sentence for ritual murder accusations. Not the last, I assume? Uh, We won't touch on any more uh, in this, but but, (laughs) but it's an interesting data point regardless. Um, Now, notably, you know I like to ask that old question, Carrie, from The Departed. Qui bono? I think Martin Scorsese coined that in the script for The Departed, right? Yes, he he knows his Latin. Carrie, qui bono? Who benefits? Yeah. From which part? From the intestines? From the arrests of all those people, from the spreading of this false story of murder. Uh, presumably Christians. Well, notably, that's an interesting point. The church, once again, as with all of the little boy martyr saints, the church... <laughs> Little Boy Murder Saints. Murder Saints. <laughs> My favorite emo band. That is a band we should, if we start a band. I don't think we should have anything with Little Boy in it. Little Boy Murder Saints is not bad. <laughs> Notably, the church benefited every time one of these new Martyr Boy Saints popped up. Um, because they got a new cult, kind of, that formed around that. And that mean, meant a new shrine with new pilgrims visiting with new donations. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Henry, the king... <laughs> Um, benefited from the fact that when people got arrested and sentenced to death, he got all their property. Ah, uh, yes. So there's that. That that does work in his favor. Yeah. Uh, now it's not just the uh, it's not just Jewish people that this has happened to throughout history. Um, similar rumors about the early Christians would lead to their persecution in the Roman Empire. You know, the idea that there were, like, blood sacrifice rituals happening uh, to good, God-fearing Roman citizens. And um, in the 16th and 17th centuries, as we will return to, uh, witch hunts erupted across Europe and even got into the Americas just a little bit. And um, thousands and thousands and thousands of women and a few men were uh, put to their deaths for no crime at all. Mm Mm-hmm. These were usually just kind of social outcasts or people who didn't have a whole lot of community standing. Um, and usually whose property would benefit the people who were arresting them. Ah. But all of that is just kind of, that's what it's looked like throughout history. My only point there is that this is nothing new exactly. Sure. As long as there's been the idea of a devil, there have been people who have tried to find those who worship him. Exactly right. Make them pay the price. But it wasn't until the early 1980s that satanic panic really took off in the United States. Well, um, they finally figured out that rhyming phrase, and that really caught on. It is catchy. And, <laughs> and the phrase satanic panic wouldn't come around, be coined, and be popularized until a little later, when people had the benefit of hindsight and could look back on all this stuff and go like, Oh, this was a panic. Oh, this was dumb. (laughs) What kicked it all off, arguably, was one book in 1980 called Michelle Remembers. Mm -hmm. Do you know this book? I've heard a little about it. So Michelle Remembers was written by Lawrence Pazder and Michelle Smith, the titular Michelle, in 1980. 
Pazder was a psychiatrist, a clinical psychiatrist who had started treating Michelle Smith at his private practice in Victoria, British Columbia in 1973. He was still seeing her in 1976 uh, when she was seeking treatment for depression and confided in Pazder that she felt like she had something important to tell him, but couldn't remember what it was. And so what did he do? Well, these claims kind of escalated a little first. Apparently in one session, she suddenly just screamed for 25 minutes straight and then started speaking in the voice of a five-year-old child. And at that point, Pazder was like, maybe we should look into this. Maybe we should see if there's any repressed memories here. Now, Caroline, sharp-eared listeners and completionists who have listened to our Betty and Barney (laughs) Hill series will be familiar with hypnotic regression. Mm -hmm. This is supposedly a tool for recovering lost memories uh, from somebody who's repressed, suppressed, or, uh, I don't know, otherwise forgotten them through the use of hypnosis. The idea is your subconscious will still have access to those memories, even if your conscious mind has shut them off to protect you from them or whatever. Yeah, so this idea was really popularized Around that exact same time, ironically, with the book and the TV movie Sybil, starring Sally Field, Um, this is kind of a really dramatic telling of um, what is supposed to be a true story, but turned out probably was not, about a a girl named Sybil who had a bunch of um, alternate personalities. She had a dissociative identity disorder. And these personalities were kind of brought out by her therapist and had to do a lot with like regressed memories and things like that. So, I mean, the movie was really big when it came out in 1976. Right. So that this idea of like repressed memories and, you know, it affecting your psychology and things like that, that's really top of mind when... Pazdar wants to uh, try and do the same sort of thing with Michelle, right? Exactly right. And not only that, but he pretty quickly decided that she had DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, because of the breaking into a five-year-old's voice and all all this kind of stuff. And what year was this? This was 1980. So this is pretty soon after the TV movie came out. I'm sure he saw that Sally Field movie, yes. Very interesting. So, Pazder started in with the hypnotic regression therapy. That's 14 months of long, many-hour sessions, which he recorded on more than 600 hours of tapes that form the basis for the book Michelle Remembers. Pazder's wife, who he had four kids with, um, started getting pretty upset around this time. She said he was disappearing with Smith for long periods of time, and uh, not all of it was accounted for. Uh-oh. Anyway, I'm sure nothing will come from that. Uh... In the sessions, and in the book, Smith recalls abuse that she says she suffered at the hands of her mother, who died in 1964, and others in a massive satanic cult in Victoria, British Columbia. Which is a small town. Sure. And not a small, it's a small city, and it's like a retirement town, from what I understand. It's, it's full of elderly coots. I mean, I guess she could have, uh, the idea of a satanic cult is kind of already out there, you know, with like Rosemary's baby having been out already and stuff like that. So I guess it's not completely random that she thought of this. No, uh, in fact, that's been pointed to. There was a lot of 
in the late 70s, Satan-based kind yeah, of... Yeah, the Omen. Um, even The Exorcist is kind of a demonic late 70s horror film. I think that's early 70s, actually. I'm sorry. I'm going to cut that out so I don't, <laughs> so I don't look the fool. Um, my point is, fear of Satan was in the zeitgeist uh, pop culturally. And, and so critics have since pointed to this book and said, maybe... <laughs> Maybe some of that was coming from the films of the last 10 years that like relentlessly, if a horror movie wasn't about teenagers getting chopped up in the woods, which also started in the 70s, uh, it was usually about demons. And this sort of thing really impacts people with a, a deep belief system. You know, I've known people who are in the church and they say that The Exorcist is the scariest movie of all time because how demonic it is to me it's not very scary it's well acted it's well made i've never been very scared of the exorcist but no. to people with deep religious belief it is horrific great suspense great atmosphere but at the end of the day it's not the strange funny games kind of kind of scares me sure the strangers kind of scares because you don't think that you can be possessed by the a devil? De a devil. No, I don't. <laughs> so, but religious people do. Yeah. Oh, it's not the it's not Satan, is it? It's Pazuzu in Yeah. Put some respect on her name. <laughs> in the book Michelle remembers Pazder relays a lot of the claims that Smith made to him, including that um when she was very so her Smith says that her mother inducted her into this satanic cult when she was five years old and said, quote, you're not mine anymore, Michelle. You belong to the devil. Michelle was imprisoned. <laughs> My mom said something similar. How funny. I know. Yeah, but that, that was when she was uh, taking you to meet Santa Claus. <laughs> That's a fun bit to play with the kids. Um, Michelle says she was imprisoned for months by the cult, during which time she was forced to drink urine eat human flesh, and bathe in the blood and body parts of stillborn babies. Like, bathing in the blood while parts were thrown on top of her. These Satanists are real gross. They're mostly gross, right? It's just like gross Even more stuff. than evil. It's gross. It's like, okay, she could drink water, you know? Like, why the urine? She was also sexually assaulted and placed for extended periods in a cage full of snakes and spiders. Yeah. Michelle also describes rituals in the Ross Bay Cemetery and in an unknown basement room. She wasn't sure how she got there, including at least two murders that are described in the books. An adult woman and a teenage girl. Them being murdered. Yes. And she describes at least six stillborn babies being sacrificed. Okay. Where are they getting all these stillborn babies? Uh, that's a great question. And it should be noted that there was no record of babies going missing in British Columbia around this time, stillborn or otherwise. The cult, uh, of which members would cut off each one of their fingers as part of an initiation rite, culminated its practices in an 81-day ritual. God, that's exhausting. Crazy how long 81 80, 81 days. 81 days. That's two, almost two and a half months. That's too much. Well, listen, what do you want if you're going to... I don't even want to go on vacation for two and a half months. But you put in all that work, you're going to get a nice result. Because this ritual, according to Michelle, summoned Satan himself. <laughs> Sup, bitches. <laughs> I'm here. She says in the book, you never see him all at once. And this is quoting the hypnosis sessions. 
You never see him all at once. He's always distorted, and he's not quite substantial. More like vapor. It turns to look at me, and it's all... Uh, like, all black? I, I'm scared! Scared! I'm scared! Nice voice work. She did it in like a five-year-old girl's. All of this testimony was given to Pazder supposedly in a five-year-old girl's voice. So I didn't mm -hmm. do that, but... Close enough. Thank you. In dramatic narration, Pazder adds, The fire on Satan's back flared up angrily, and his tail shot out at Michelle, wrapping around her legs <laughs> tightly so she was forced to stand erect. His tail? Yeah, of course. He's got a little demon tail with a little arrow at the end. Aww. Sweet. Don't worry about five-year-old Michelle, though. Obviously, she survived to write the book. And that's because, in that instance, Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and Michael the Archangel all showed up to fight and defeat Satan for her and help her escape the cult and remove the abuse scars from Michelle's body, as well as erasing all of her memories of the abuse, quote, until the time was right. So this whole cult was missing fingers? Yes, everyone in the cult. <laughs> Was did, missing. Did the Michael finger. the Archangel also give all of these cultists their fingers back? She, because you feel like in a small town in British Columbia, it would be a little obvious if a bunch of people that hang out together don't have fingers. You know, you say that, Carrie. I do. And so do lots of other people. It's okay. been it's been well noted. <laughs> it's been well noted that um Yeah, if a bunch of people in the same town were all missing like the top half of their middle finger. You'd notice. You'd notice. There were also no mentions or reports or complaints or police reports filed. Anything like that for people in the cemetery, large gatherings in the cemetery, large gatherings in the cemetery for 81 days straight. Missing stillborn children. No missing stillborn children. Uh, there was no record of... Were there any murders in this area at the time? Not unsolved ones. And there's no record of <laughs> Michelle missing any school. Okay, because, yeah, I mean, she's school-aged. You would be missing school for this, right? That's correct. The book describes a car crash at one point that there's no record of either uh, on, on the on the prescribed date A and satanic time. car crash? No, this was just regular type. Oh, so she, okay. <laughs> um, it also doesn't mention Michelle Smith's two siblings who exist and who both say that this is nonsense, along with her father. She Michelle ended up estranged from her family after this. Because, no. Because her father said she was, you know, just basically, I don't know why she would do this to my wife's memory. I do not know. That's horrific. Um, the book also doesn't mention that by the time of publishing, Smith and Pazder had both divorced their spouses and married each other. Oh, no. Yeah. That's not allowed. No, that's like the first thing you do as a therapist, right? Is like you, you form a bond of trust and then you abuse that trust to get sex. Isn't that like good therapist no. one? Oh, it's not. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yikes. I guess we need a better help ad this week to point people at some, some good therapy. I, I'm going to need it for sure after this. Michelle remembers... It may not surprise you to know, Carrie, was a massive bestseller mm -hmm. that coined the term ritual abuse and kicked off a wave of moral panic across the country. By Basically saying, like, what's happening in The Omen and uh, Rosemary's Baby is real and it's happening to your children. It's happening to your children right now. Mm -hmm. 
And a doctor wrote it, so why wouldn't they believe it? A psychiatrist, no less. Uh, by 1987, this did very well for Lawrence Pazder, obviously, and by 1987, he was reporting that a third of his time was being spent consulting on ritual abuse cases. Mm. Again, he had just coined... <laughs> From the... zero Yes. <laughs> before this. He had just coined the term ritual abuse, so there couldn't have been any before. Well, he's, he's the expert, Sean. He made up the words. That's right. He did, however, withdraw his claims from the book that the Church of Satan was involved. Um, because Anton LaVey himself threatened to sue. Yeah, just a little note here. Uh, Satanists, especially those in the Church of Satan, don't generally believe in an actual literal Satan. Or a literal God. devil. Yeah, they're atheistic. It's really more of a... Um, they're just a-hole atheists. They're just like... <laughs> not they're, I don't mean that even in a bad way, necessarily. But they're like atheists who want to make a real stink about it. Yeah, but they also do, they do go by their, their sort of creed. It, it's really like a, a way of life and a way of belief that has nothing to do with religion. Do what thou wilt, and that is the whole of the law. I mean, yeah, that is it. And a lot, you know, people think, oh, Satanists are terrible. But it's also like, most of it is, you know, do what you will, but you can't hurt anyone else. Like, that's pretty paramount as well. And then you, you get into, like, some of the magical belief and stuff. But again, even that magical belief has nothing to do with a devil, the devil, God, anything like that. And that's what people kind of don't understand. They just equate it all to a fork-tailed uh, devil person with fire on his back. Right. Which, um, this is mainly, real Satanists are mainly just really pasty people having sex with each other, right? I mean, I'm sure that's part of it, but, like, black masses and stuff have nothing to do with, uh, anything in, in terms of murder or, again, because it goes against, it goes against their beliefs to hurt anyone. You know, so, it just, people aren't really doing their research. Yeah. So, of course, Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan were pissed off because they're saying that they're murderers and rapists and pee-pee drinkers, and they're not doing any of that stuff. Carrie, do you remember in the last season of American, maybe it wasn't the last one, in that apocalypse season of American Horror Story when they make a deal, with the, I think, I think... Uh, the Antichrist, isn't it? Yeah, the Antichrist is played by Tate from the first season. No, it's played by Cody Fern. The Antichrist is a tall, handsome, blonde child. Yes, who turns into a tall, handsome, blonde man. Young man. Sure. Young man. <laughs> Are you ready to go? And then Anton LaVey himself. Not the man, but uh, uh, like the character of Anton LaVey comes in and performs like a, a human sacrifice ritual on the table. Yes. Well, a lot of people said, and even I think the Church of Satan was like, this isn't right. This isn't correct. You're just making shit up. Because it, it, it's not even like it has anything to do with their belief system. That's what I was, I think, if I think if you recall correctly, reacting loudly to when the episode was on. Yes. Yes, you were. You react loudly to everything, Sean. I know, but I can't have my I can't I can't have them out here hurting my Satanists. <laughs> Your Satanists. You know, I've got friends. Oh, okay. They're pasty. They like to have sex. That I know. <laughs> <laughs> Just because they're friends of mine. <laughs> I mean, yes. Just to give you an idea of the kind of tone the media was taking. 
in the 1980s about this ritual abuse thing, this satanic conspiracy. This actually comes from a couple years later. This is from an Oprah episode in 1999. 99? I'm sorry. 1989. But the reason I bring Oprah up, I was look when I found this clip, I was looking for a clip of Michelle Smith on Oprah because Oprah had this woman on her show. She had a lot of people on her show. And all she does with all of them is just accept all of their claims as fact, not push back or ask critical questions in any way, just go, ooh, interesting. That's how she treats all of her guests. And so I couldn't find the clip of Michelle Smith, um, but here's an episode from 1989 where Oprah's talking to a different victim of satanic ritual abuse. Great. My next guest was used also in worshiping the devil, participated in human sacrifice rituals, rituals and cannibalism. She says her family has been involved in rituals for generations. She is currently in extensive therapy, suffers from multiple personality disorder, meaning she's blocked out many of the terrifying and painful memories of her childhood. Meet Rachel, who is also in disguise to protect her identity. And, and this is a, this is, does everyone else think it's a nice Jewish family? From the outside, you appear to be a nice Jewish girl. Definitely. And you all are worshipping the devil inside the home? Right. There's other Jewish families across the country. It's not just my own family. Really? Really, Oprah says. She's just in. Jewish families that are worshipping the devil? Involved in worshipping the devil. Well, that's obviously very problematic. And also, I'm I'm not loving... All of it was problematic. Yeah, I'm not loving how Oprah was like... um, uh, this girl was yes. abused, not alleges that she was she, abused. She was involved in like the third sentence. She switches to like she says this yes, happened. But at the, the hands first of a- thing was she was abused. She participated in cannibalism. It's like you can't just you can't just say that, Oprah. Like it's a like, fact. Even if she says it, you can't take her word for it. But for the entire decade of the 1980s, and I'll have a little bit of audio a little later in this show from a Geraldo Rivera special from 1987 that is uh, just a doozy. And trust me, we will be returning to Geraldo next week. Uh, is this where he, he found Jimmy Hoffa's cave or whatever and there was nothing in it? No, hilariously, <laughs> it's it's not that one. That's amazing. And if <laughs> listeners go on YouTube and find the clip where Geraldo Rivera uh, opens up Jimmy Hoffa's disappointing vault. Yes. Um. But no, this was a different special. In 1987, Geraldo did a special just about, like, Satanism, and it's out to get your kids. And it was just about exposing the uh, satanic underpinnings of, of all of America. Again, it's it's got nothing to do with anything like that. And he talks a lot about heavy metal music in it. And at one point, he interviews Ozzy Osbourne and, like, does kind of a whole, like, and, I don't know what you're fucking talking about, man. Uh, he goes, but what about a sense of responsibility, sir? To Ozzy, he he chewed a dove's head off. What are you talking about? Responsibility. It was a bat. Someone thought it was. Someone threw it on stage, and he thought it was a fake bat. What sense of responsibility? Right, exactly. (laughs) But also, why should he have a sense of responsibility? He's the prince of fucking darkness. Yeah, seriously, he's not your parent. Let a guy wear a black T-shirt and some eyeliner. Jesus, please, please. Take my Ozzy, please. <laughs> um, oh my God. I just looked at the clock and it's actually time to take our first break. So we are going to come back after that break with all of the skinny. I think this might be a long episode, Carrie. With all of the skinny on McMartin Preschool, where the satanic ritual abuse craze of the 1980s really hit its stride. And not 
for the best for anyone. <laughs> okay. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Lots of things are a struggle right now. School, work, even something as simple as going to the grocery store. It could feel overwhelming. But one thing that shouldn't be overwhelming is accessing mental and emotional care. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp is the leader in online counseling with over 4,000 licensed counselors on the site and over 500,000 people who have gotten counseling to date. The mission of BetterHelp is to make professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient, so anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. I've been using BetterHelp for the better part of this year, and honestly, I don't know how I would have gotten through 2020 without it. And, of course, Sean and Poe. When I need to talk to my counselor, I can just text her and I can schedule chats, phone calls, or video calls for longer sessions. This means I have flexibility to set a session during the week, or during busy weeks, I can just shoot her a message here and there when I have time. Take control of your mental and emotional well-being. BetterHelp is a great place to start. For 10% off your first month's subscription of BetterHelp, go to our podcast link at www.betterhelp.com slash scary and see how good it can feel to push past the struggle and find hope in a new day. That's www.betterhelp.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y for 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Get professional counseling anytime, anywhere, because you deserve to be happy. And we're back. Carrie, when last we left our listeners here, we had just finished going over kind of the underpinnings of the... um, satanic ritual abuse panic of the 1980s. Uh, In fact, we just heard that term for the first time from Lawrence Pazder, as did the United States. Yeah, we met Little St. Hugh, we met Michelle, Oprah. There's been a whole cast of characters already. Absolutely. And the thing that is that everything has in common so far is it's all just lies underpinned with hatred. Yes. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of fear about the ritual abuse that was supposedly going on in the United States, but what there wasn't yet was any victims. That would change, tragically, beginning in 1983 at the McMartin Preschool uh, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, McMartin Preschool was run by a Virginia McMartin who was already pretty old at the time and uh, uh, just kind of overseeing things at this point. Uh, Most of the administration was done by her daughter, Peggy McMartin Bucky. Uh, Bucky being her married name. And this case will revolve mostly around 25-year-old Ray Bucky, grandson of Virginia, son of Peggy, who was working as a teacher at the school at the time. But it really does involve the whole family. It does, 100%. Mm -hmm. Um, And other people working at the... 
preschool. Yes, but this story starts and ends with Ray. All right. In 1983, a mother at the school, at the daycare, named Judy Johnson, had a two-year-old son who had a rash on his butt, and Judy said a little bit of rectal bleeding. Uh, Judy started worrying immediately about child abuse and called the police. The two-year-old boy was interviewed by Detective Jane Hoag, um, who he told he had been molested by 25-year-old Ray Bucky. Yeah, I mean, just on his face, very serious uh, accusations. 100%, and and yeah, there's nothing I can do or say that's funny about that. It's just a serious accusation and matter that you have to take seriously. And if a child really believes this... um... You know, I all of this is alleged or whatever. It's terrible. It's a hor- horrific thing for a kid to feel has happened to them. And after the accusation was made, Bucky was arrested September 7th, 1983, although he was released that same day because there was a total lack of evidence at this point. Just the physical possibility. Yes, exactly. And the boy had gone and been examined at UCLA, and the doctors did say, well, like, some of this rectal bleeding could be consistent with an abuse case. Or it could be a kid that's not very good at, like... Wiping. Wiping and stuff. Most of them aren't at five. Yeah. On September 8th, the very next day, after Bucky had been arrested and then released, police sent a message to 200 current and former parents at the daycare. Here's an excerpt. So what we have right now is like, well, we really don't know what this is, right? So we should be cautious and uh, we don't want to make anybody panic or... So they sent out like a flyer to everyone? They sent out a letter. Oh boy. A form letter. uh, And this is just part of it. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently a student at the preschool. We are asking your assistance in this continuing investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if she or he has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock or chest area, and sodomy, possibly committed under the pretense of, quote, taking the child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child, is important. Holy shit. I mean, this is just lobbing a grenade of panic at a bunch of parents. If I got that, I would be shitting my pants. Like, I would be so scared and upset. Of course. And then just no explanation. Just like, oh, your child could have been raped. Sincerely, the police. It's like, what? Wait, what? And there's just no, there's no tone here. The tone here is... Your child's teacher is a sex offender. Yes. And this is an ongoing investigation to see how many children he raped. We need to find out how many children he raped and how. I mean, you should have at least had... Please ask your kids how he raped them. Have a PTA meeting or something. Don't just throw this out in a letter and then be like, all right, we're done. Good police work, everyone. It's crazy, right? Yes. This kicked off... Hysteria? Obviously hysteria, but it also it, it kicked off the involvement of Children's Institute International, which was an L.A.-based abuse therapy clinic that was brought in to interview the children. Mm-hmm. By the police. Uh, brought in by the police. 
Yes. Okay. The director at the time was a social worker named Key McFarlane. I think Key is short for Kathleen, improbably. Hmm. But in any case, Key McFarlane conducted many of these interviews. She also had other social workers working for her who uh, conducted these interviews. But with techniques she had kind of pioneered. Mm-hmm. And Key was, um, I get the sense she was a little bit of a freestyler. She really wanted to go her own way with this. And Key McFarlane and her social workers condu- conducted these interviews with the children using hand puppets. So that the interviewer has a hand puppet on their hand. The child also has a hand puppet on their hand. You only talk through the puppets. Uh, the thinking being this is going to make it a little easier for the kid to talk about something traumatic. Mm-hmm. And also traumatize them about puppets forever. Probably. And speaking of traumatizing, uh, these interviews also, of course, used the now obligatory um, anatomically correct male and female dolls uh, to have the child point to where they were touched. Show us on the doll where they touched you. That, that stereotypical little cliche. That is absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. A lot of attention was paid during the trial and in the years since to the um, interview methods used here because the questions were, as you kind of just alluded to, even the show me on the doll where he touched you is a, is a leading, leading question. Mm-hmm. And the questions Key McFarlane asked were very leading. And yeah, I mean, imagine, you know, the the f- letter that they sent home to the parents was leading. It led them to believe that this was an act of crime. Um, so, you know, translate that to asking the same sorts of things to children who won't have any way to determine whether this is true or not or their tone or things like that they're just going to sort of believe it now carrie i'm going to put you to work here because i have some interview transcripts here to get through oh great so why don't you take the uh, lines that say boy here okay this will be one of the um anonymous uh children who was supposedly a victim in this case and i'll be key mcfarlane and remember we both have puppets on our hands here right and and Key goes, well, Mr. Monkey's a little bit chicken, and he can't remember any of the naked games. But we think you can, because we know a naked games that you were around for, because the other kids told us. And I think it's called Naked Movie Star. Do you remember that game, Mr. Alligator, or is your memory too bad? Um, I don't remember that game. Oh, Mr. Alligator. Um, well, it's um a little song that me and a friend heard of. Oh. Well, I heard someone singing Naked Movie Star, Naked Movie Star. You know that, Mr. Alligator? That means you're smart, because that's the same thing other kids knew, and that's how we really know you're smarter than you look. So you better not play dumb, Mr. Alligator. Well, I didn't really hear a whole lot. I just heard someone yell it from out in the... Someone yelled it. Maybe. Mr. Alligator, you peeked in the window one day and saw them playing it, and maybe you could help remember and help us. Well, no, I haven't seen anyone playing Naked Movie Star. I've only heard the song. What good are you? You must be dumb. Well, I don't know, really. Um, remember seeing anyone play that, because I wasn't there when, I, when people were playing it. You weren't? You weren't? That's why we were hoping maybe you saw, see? A lot of these puppets weren't there, but they got to see what happened. 
Well, I saw a lot of fighting. I bet you can help us a lot, though, because, like, Naked Movie Star is a simple game, because we know about that game, because we just had 20 kids told us about that game. Just this morning, a little girl came in and played it for us and sang it just like that. Do you think if I asked you a question, you could put your thinking cap on and you might remember, Mr. Alligator? Maybe. You could nod your head, yes or no. Can you remember who took the pictures for the Naked Movie Star game? That would be a great thing to feed into the secret machine, and then it would be all gone, just like all the other kids did. You can just nod whether you remember or not. See how good your memory is. The boy nods the puppet's head. You do? Well, that's remarkable. I wonder if you could hold a pointer in your mouth, and then you wouldn't have to say a word, and the boy wouldn't have to say a word, and you could just point. The boy places a pretend camera on adult male nude doll using the alligator puppet. Sometimes he did. Can I pat you on the head for that? Look what a big help you can be. You're going to help all these little children because you're so smart. Okay, did they ever pose in funny poses for the pictures? And that's where we'll cut it off. It's sick. I mean, it's so leading. It's preposterous. It's it's actually absurd. Basically calling him dumb if he didn't go along with it. So, of course, he's going to be like, yeah, maybe. How, how young is this kid? Like five? Um... Well, it was some former students, too, so the, the kids they interviewed. By 1987, the kids who I saw testified in the trial were 11 and 12 years old. Mm-hmm. So they must have been a little older at this point. Still, I mean, you're shaming them if they don't remember what you're telling them is true. Uh, so, of course, they're going to go along with it because they think that all adults are right. So, of course... They're right. Um, I must be dumb. I must have forgotten. Mm-hmm. <sighs> it's so wrong. Now here's an interview. Um, this is from an interview. Another uh, one of her social workers, uh, a guy named Heger, did with a, a little girl. And you can see that sometimes uh, the technique didn't always work eh, like they wanted it to. This is my favorite puppet right here. You want to be this puppet? Okay. Uh, then I get to be Detective Dog. We're just going to figure it all out. Okay. When that tricky part about touching the kids was going on, could you take a pointer in your mouth and point on the on the doll over here? On either one of these dolls. Where where the kids were touched. Could you do that? I don't know. I know that the kids were touched. Let's see if we can figure that out. I don't know. You don't know where they were touched? Uh-uh. Well, some of the kids told me that they were touched sometimes. They said that it was... Well, sometimes it kind of hurt. And some of the times, it felt pretty good. Do you remember that touching game that went on? No. Okay, let me see if I can try something else and... Whee! At this point, the little girl is spinning the puppet above her head. Come on, Bird, get down here and help us out. No. Bird is having a hard time talking. I don't want to hear any more no's. Nope, nope, detective dog, we're going to figure this out. Ugh. The girl clearly does not want to be doing this, does not have any recollection of this. She's it's, spinning the puppet over her head. It's sick. It's, Just, this uh, whole thing is sick. Hoping this guy will give her a juice box and send her home at some point. Mm-hmm. Since these in- interviewers wouldn't stop until they got answers they wanted from the kids, they got all kinds of answers from them. Sure. Including claims by the children that they had seen Ray Bucky and other witches. Not from the school necessarily, but people from town who were part of these rituals and would wear robes and fly around the room. Um, fly? Yeah, they would fly, sure. Okay. 
the children said that they were taken through a series of secret tunnels underneath the preschool to a, a separate house where they were ritually abused. Um, a few of the kids said that Ray sometimes put lions in the room with them. Just put them in a room full of lions to keep them quiet. Mm-hmm. So, They're just saying anything at this point. Yes, they will just say anything. And presumably they looked for those tunnels. Uh, after the building was demolished. We'll get to that. Okay. So yep. they didn't check They didn't check while the trial was going on or whatever? Uh, no, they didn't. No, nobody investigated for those tunnels. The only time you see those tunnels brought up again is after the trial's over, the preschool is closed and it's been demolished and some people went through the rubble and found some stuff that was like oh could this be a tunnel entrance okay meanwhile judy johnson who the mom who had started all this um, was continuing to call up the detective bureau and make additional accusations against ray bucky now what where was ray at this point he had been arrested he was let go uh, yep, and I don't. He had. I been, assume he wasn't working at the preschool anymore. He was staying at home, I think, but he hadn't been rearrested yet. But he wasn't engaging with any of these children anymore. No, no certainly okay. not. So, what were the additional accusations? Uh, well, here's a excerpt from an interview that, uh, what I assume is a very reluctant and exhausted detective, uh, did with Judy Johnson. These are from the detective's notes, I believe. Lots of threats were made against Billy and his family. It is unclear whether it was a doll or a real baby. Billy says real baby. But the head was chopped off and the brains were burned. Billy said Peggy killed the baby. Peggy had scissors in the church and she cut Billy's hair. Peggy's one of the... Peggy's Ray's mom. Okay. Billy had to drink the baby's blood. Ray wanted Billy's spit. He put it on the altar. The baby was big like Billy. It screamed. When Billy's bottom was bleeding, Ray put a Tampax in his bottom to stop the bleeding. Then he pulled it out. Ugh. So that's an excerpt from an actual police interview that somebody had to take. And this is what the mom says the child said. Yes. So it's not directly from the child's mouth. No, and I also saw him referenced as Billy once and as Matthew another time. So They um, might have been pseudonyms. Probably for the best, protecting the innocent. Yeah. He's okay. A, he's a liar. <laughs> Well, he's also a child. He might not have known what he was doing. It sounds like his mom was very determined about Ray Bucky. Um, she wouldn't ever get to testify in the trial, though, or even the preliminary hearing. Because she drank herself to death and was found dead in her home from, quote, fatty metamorphosis of the liver in 1986. Jesus. Judy Johnson. Um, previous to that, she had been diagnosed a paranoid schizophrenic. So she was not a well woman. Oh. Yeah. And she started this whole thing. That's not good. No, it's it's not good at all. And meanwhile, by spring of 1984, there were claims of abuse against 360 children. Wow. The children weren't being accused. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it took me a second. 360 children were claiming they had been abused. Yes. At the preschool. Medical examiners were brought in to take photos of, uh, quote, minute scarring on the children's genitals and uh, uh, butts. Yeah. That was uh, believed to be possible evidence of um, uh, abuse, at least by the prosecution. Mm -hmm. God, how horrible for those kids. I mean, 
Who knows what happened to them, but if nothing had happened and they were just let on this whole time and then put through all of that, I mean, that's basically sexual assault right there. That's trauma for them. I That's uh, so horrific. Oh, yeah. When you, when you hold a conversation with a child to the point that you can get them to tell you that they were... I mean, the, that child didn't know what anal sex was when they started the conversation. Yeah. So to, to get to a place where now they're telling you that it happened to them, um, you have you have kind of abused that child. You've kind of changed the way their their poor brain has to work. Sure. Anyway, why was uh, why was this case even being pursued with this much vigor? I assume it's some political thing. It's interesting you say that. The district attorney at the time for L.A. County, Robert Filibosian, was uh, seeking re-election. And it's he... always that. It's always the DA seeking re-election. Maybe it shouldn't be an elected position. A hundred percent not. A hundred percent not. And he was not doing well, so he wanted a big case to, to really get it going. The amount of times this happens is freaking absurd. Well, that's probably why on March 22nd, 1984, Ray Bucky... Peggy McMartin Bucky, Virginia McMartin, and Peggy Ann Bucky, all the members of the family who worked at the at the place, mm-hmm. as well as teachers Mary Ann Jackson, Betty Rader, and get a load of this name Babette Spitler. Babette Spitler. Yeah, isn't that one of your grandpa's old flames? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. They were charged with a total of a hundred fifteen counts which was later expanded to 348 counts involving 48 children. Oh, God. Okay. Guess who was brought in as, as a consultant on the case? Lawrence Pazdar? And his wife, Michelle Smith. That should... No, that should disqualify him. If he married his patient, no more. Disqualified. Uh, Glenn Stevens was the prosecutor. Sicko. Glenn Stevens was the prosecutor assigned to the case at the time, but he would later end up leaving the case. Um, he says that there's no question Lawrence Pazder and Michelle Smith heavily influenced the children's testimonies. And in fact, that even that was, further than they already had been. And in fact, that that was why they were brought in. <sighs> it's horrible. But by 1986, there was a new DA in town because Philobosian lost that election. And the new guy called the evidence incredibly weak. That's a quote and dropped all charges against Virginia McMartin, Peggy Ann Bucky, and the teachers. Funny how that happens when you're not (laughs) running a campaign, trying to make a big splash. Exactly right. Um, Nonetheless, Ray Bucky was still denied bail and was uh, awaiting trial. Peggy McMartin Bucky, his mom, was in jail on $1 million bail. Jesus. The trial opened July 13th, 1987, with Bucky being represented by Danny Davis. And the prosecution, led by Lael Rubin, uh, brought seven medical witnesses. The defense was only allowed one by the judge, quote, to save time. What? But then in the prosecution's closing arguments, they specifically mentioned, like, look, we had seven medical experts. The defense only had one. That's... (sighs) Okay. That's... Clearly wrong and biased. The trial went on for months, of course. Uh, A few months later, in October 1987, Ray Bucky's cellmate in lockup, George Freeman, came in to testify about a a jail cell confession, 
where Ray had told him that he had done all these things and that he was a Satanist sex offender. Yeah, who doesn't brag about the children they've abused in jail? I feel like that goes really well for people, usually. And why wouldn't we believe Freeman? He's a five-time convicted felon. Oh, boy. And he had previously confessed to perjury in several cases in order to get preferential treatment, either in jail or time off his sentence or whatever. You know, DAs have these jailhouse confession guys who, like, that's what they do. Right. We've only got a little bit more, a couple more pieces of testimony that we have to read through, Carrie, but these are conversations and I do still need you. Okay. And in this case, uh, I'd love for you to be Prosecutor Lael Rubin. Mm-hmm. And I will be George Freeman, friend of justice. Did Ray Bucky say that molestations actually occurred in the preschool? Uh, yes, he did. <laughs> What's that voice? You know, I'm like a jailhouse snitch guy. <laughs> When? Uh, nap time. Did he tell you he used anything to help him molest children? Yes, he did. What did he use to help him molest children? Uh, KY, baby oil. You told Ray Bucky you had molested children in order to make him comfortable. Why is it you wanted to make him comfortable? Well, I was curious. I mean, I have kids. What did he tell you? He said he fucked a two-year-old boy in the butt. Did Ray Bucky tell you he took pictures to South Dakota? Yes, he did. Did he tell you what was on the pictures and films? The kids in sex acts. Did he tell you what was done with any other pictures? Yeah, he did. He said some of them were in Denmark. Did you talk to Ray Bucky about church? Uh, yes, he did. He said he belonged to a church that I couldn't get into, like a, like a cult. Did Ray Bucky say anything about herning animals? Yes, he did. What did he say? Well, if the kids told on him, he slaughtered a cow at a ranch. It's a weird, it's a weird uh, thing to threaten kids with. Uh, some of the kids had said that he killed animals in front of them. Mm-hmm. Or put them in a room with lions. Yes, put them in a room with lions, certainly. But he, there was talk of him uh, hurting animals, like killing a cat in front of them and saying, like, I'll do this to your families if you tell. Jeez. Uh, and now for the cross-examination, and for this, of course, you'll be um, defense attorney Danny Davis, who I really like the cut of this guy's jib. Mr. Freeman, are you a rat? <sighs> they say I am in different places. Mr. Freeman, how would anybody in the world know how many lives you've told in the preliminary? Only God. And you're a strong-arm robber, aren't you? Depends. Depends on what? If I'm drunk enough. You were an informant in the Bailey case. Yeah! And you lied in front of the jury. One thing, I believe. Did you consider it a serious lie? I had my reasons. Those reasons you carried throughout your criminal career, right? Right. I'm going to list case cases in which you committed perjury. Is there any case in which you didn't perjure yourself? I don't know. Was there any case where the DA didn't know you were lying under oath? I don't know. The DA, Watts, used you as a witness after he knew you lied. Yes, he did. Uh. Wow. Yeah. So it's just so obvious that prosecutorial misconduct was all over the place here. Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, the original prosecutor, Glenn Stevens, had left the case entirely. And after the fact, he accused the prosecution team of withholding evidence, uh, like exonerating evidence, um, 
from the defense and information uh, generally from the defense and also straight up lying, including the lie that Judy Johnson's son had identified Ray Bucky in a lineup, which the kid couldn't even do, apparently. And he knew Ray Bucky. Yes, he was his teacher. Yeah. Huh. The children, the supposed uh, victims in the case, of course, were asked to testify as well. Um, Caroline, if you could once again be the uh, prosecutor and I will be uh, this 11-year-old witness. Okay. Did Ray put anything in your mouth? Yes. (laughs) Which part? His penis. In a classroom? I don't know. Do you remember seeing Miss Peggy without clothes on? Yes. I looked in the window. She had her bra on. All right, interesting, right? But now we go to the cross-examination from uh, from Davis, where it seems like this kid might just say yes to almost anything. Did you see a horse get killed? Yeah. Was it a full-grown horse? Yeah. Do you know what color it was? I don't know. How did the horse get killed? Ray hit it with a bat. Where? I don't remember. Interesting. Yeah. That's um that's a kid who's just who's just saying yes. He just wants this thing to be over in my in my mind. Sure. And I mean if he was already led to believe that the oral sex assault had occurred, then he it's kind of like reading off a script at this point. That's and ex- they're only having him testify because He's giving this, quote-unquote, good testimony for the prosecution. The cross-examinations, especially of the children, you see Danny Davis asking, like, and did any adults talk to you about this in those meetings at at CII? And did you practice with with Ms. McFarlane about how to to talk about this? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and he just hit that over and over again, as well as playing videotape from these sessions, which the prosecution thought would play well in court. It did not. No, because it's, even from the transcript of, from before, it's so obvious that she's leading. Um, if it was obvious there, Carrie, let's let's do our last bit of dialogue in this show here. And, and tell me if Key's leading here. I can't quite tell. Who's this with? Uh, this is with a another child. I don't know if it's a boy or a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, but you be Key. Was the game some sort of tricky game? I don't think Ray did anything. Pac-Man glad to remember tricky games. Not of me. Other kids? I never saw that. Ray never touched me. Oh, Pac-Man knows all the secrets. I don't know any secrets. We know the sneaky game. She picks up the puppet and places it on top of another doll. Can you show me the sneaky place? Points to the doll's abdomen. How yucky. Any place real sneaky, someplace private? Maybe in Wiener? How well you remember. You've done a real good job. It's like sick. Constantly I'm, asking. I felt gross reading that, Sean. Yeah, so did I. Ugh. I was the little boy talking about his Wiener. I felt weird about it too, but Yeah, we... but I ugh. it's so abusive. Oh, it's horrible. And at the end, when she says, you've done a real good job. Sick. And earlier she called a kid dumb. Mm-hmm. You must be dumb. Mm-hmm. Like, Jesus. So uh, that didn't play well with the jury, to state the obvious. But that doesn't mean it went easy for Ray Bucky. Uh, on January 18th, 1980, 
the jury finally was ready with their verdict, they had deliberated for nine weeks after hearing three years of testimony. Mm-hmm. Isn't this like the longest case in California history or one of the longest cases? It is the longest case in uh, U.S. history, I think. Well, I'll, more on that later. Sure. Peggy McMartin Bucky was acquitted on all counts. Um, and in fact, the year before this verdict came back, a judge had already approved her appeal to get her teaching certificate back and go back to working with kids. So um, this was kind of a foregone conclusion for Peggy McMartin Bucky. Mm-hmm. Ray Bucky was cleared on 52 of the 65 counts against him. Mm. There were two jurors who wouldn't clear him on the other 13 counts. Okay. But it ended up being a hung jury on those 13, and he was cleared of the other 52. No guilty verdicts. Mm -hmm. Ray had to come back later to be retried on six of those counts. Jesus. This was between May and July of 1990 and resulted in another hung jury. So he was never cleared of all of the crimes, but finally they just dropped all the charges at the end of that second trial. By the time he got out of prison... Ray Bucky had been imprisoned for over five years without having ever been convicted of a single crime. Just waiting for the trial to end. Just waiting for the trial to end. The trial on whether he was a ritually satanic sex offender. Yeah, so obviously prison wasn't going well for him. No, and what was going to go well for him when he came out? He wasn't going to go back into child care. No. Speaking of which, the McMartin Preschool, of course, had been closed at this point. You're not going to get many students in. No. And the building was demolished. Mm Mm-hmm. This is the early 90s now. Yes. Okay. Of Ray Bucky, his lawyer, Davis, said, He was singly the most heroic client I've ever defended. Not only because he was innocent, but he endured it with a quiet wisdom. Jeez. Um, All in all, this was a seven-year, $15 million legal proceeding which makes it not only the longest, but also the most expensive criminal case in U.S. history. And it resulted in no convictions. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It did have a pretty wide-ranging impact, though. It changed the way police and social workers interview children in potential abuse cases. Less fucking hope. Jeez. Um, They did learn how important it is not to ask leading questions, at least not when you're on videotape. Ray Bucky changed his name and moved to the Pacific Northwest later. He currently lives there with his wife and child. That's based on an Oxygen documentary that came out, I think, last year. Really recently, yeah. Key McFarlane went on to testify before Congress that there was an organized nationwide conspiracy of orthodox satanic groups sexually abusing children. Orthodox? She never gave any evidence. Yeah, well, she was... She had to take on... It seems like she had to take on the term orthodox satanism to... Make it clear that she wasn't talking about, like, Levian Satanism was... Orthodox was out, being actually believing in the devil. Actual Satanist, as opposed to, like, this new school. Which is really the only only school that there is. But yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, she never gave any evidence, but it's good to know that she had learned <laughs> from her experience at McMartin. Listen, I'm sure there's someone here or there that's sacrificed someone to Satan, just like uh, the Slender Man stabbing. You know, those kids thought that they were going to meet Slender Man by stabbing their friend. I'm sure that there's people that are very mentally ill or just sick, in, we- and they will hurt other people for, quote-unquote, Satan. But 
the widespread cults with missing fingers. And I mean, it's hard to believe there's some kind of secret cabal that uh, no one's spilled the beans about. Well, exactly. And yeah, to your point, you have people like a Richard Ramirez who will kill people and say, I did it for Satan or something. But he's really just a deeply disturbed man who's kind of trying to be an edgelord in the worst Mm -hmm. possible way. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a Satanist. He's not worshiping anything. Except for himself. Yeah, exactly. Um, the accusers today are a mixed bag. Some of them say that they genuinely still remember and are scarred by these experiences. Many of them suffer from dissociative identity disorder, um, which was previously called multiple personalities. Um, and that's an interesting thing. Memory is a really interesting thing. Because these people with DID, like, yes, maybe they are repressing something from their past and their, you know, isn't the theory that their brain has fractured off a separate little kind of mind to hold those memories? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's true, but maybe... Maybe it's the trauma of what they went through in the questioning and the trial. Or, or maybe whatever trauma... I'm just saying, why, why are we so sure you can have repressed, locked away memories without having the possibility of false memories? In there, you know what I mean? I think it's completely possible. I mean, listen, I can't say for sure what happened here. Um, Some of this stuff seems illogical, impractical, uh, lions and and flying witches and all this stuff. Was there abuse? I don't know. It certainly seems like, at the very least, the questioning tactics were abusive. And, you know, if you can make a child believe something, they can... This is going to sound absurd, but follow me on this path. I'm following. Uh, when I was very, very little, my parents were watching a documentary on Abraham Lincoln. Yes. I know the story well. Yes. Because you still have the nightmare. Because my dad told this story at my sweet 16 in front of all my friends. Anyway, so I was watching this documentary with my parents because I was a very nerdy child, clearly, and it involved the assassination And I imagined the assassination in my head, but I didn't understand the difference between imagination and memory because in my head, they, they looked, they felt the same, you know, I'm seeing an image in my head. It must be something that I remember because that's how I remember things. So when I imagined the assassination, when the documentary was going on, I burst into tears. I was hysterical, inconsolable. And um, my parents asked, what's wrong? You know, like they thought I was just upset because this guy was killed. It was. It was because of that, because I thought I was uh, his assassin. John Wilkes Booth. Yes, I thought I was John Wilkes Booth. Um, All this to say... I don't think young, young kids might understand the difference between imagined scenarios that are planted in their heads by adults who they're supposed to trust and everything and real concrete memories. And those scenarios could become real concrete memories because they were planted in their heads so young that they have no way of discerning it. When I was a little kid and I I felt that in my mind, I was inconsolable. I was sobbing. I was a wreck because I felt so guilty because I, myself, little four-year-old Caroline, shot Abe Lincoln. 
Six and you could you couldn't yes you couldn't convince me otherwise even though it was a hundred percent impossible so yeah that's a funny story but well imagine if you had a lady with a, a nice lady with a hand puppet going now show me on the doll where you shot the president and maybe I would have believed it you know guided in that sense of by someone who I was supposed to trust someone smarter, someone bigger than me telling me, no, you did shoot Abe Lincoln. Um, show, show us how it happened. <laughs> you know, it's again, it's a stupid story, but it kind of transfers into that idea of kids not might, may not understand the difference. And so you can be, I, I still imagine the assassination the same way. I don't believe I, <laughs> I am John Wilkes Booth anymore. Are you sure? You, <laughs> you could be in your 30s and 40s and have these same things that were planted in your mind from decades earlier and not know the difference between memory or imagination because you didn't know it back then. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very easy for them to um, to still think that way. Now, whether or not, again, I can't say whether this really happened to them in some fashion Maybe not as ghoulishly. Maybe there was abuse. I don't know. But it's certainly possible that memories were kind of planted into their heads and they still don't know the difference. Yeah. Um, I read an interview with uh, one of the accusers, Kyle Zerpolo. Uh, he did an interview in 2005 with the LA Times Magazine. This is a quote from Kyle. Never did anyone do anything to me and I never saw them do anything. I said a lot of things that didn't happen. I lied. Anytime I would give an answer they didn't like, they would ask again and encourage me to give the answer they were looking for. I felt uncomfortable and a little ashamed that I was being dishonest, but at the same time, being the type of person I was, whatever my parents wanted me to do, I would do. Yeah, I mean, just remember that feeling of being a kid and your parent accuses you of doing something that internally you know you didn't do maybe it was your friend maybe it was someone else maybe you have no idea but they're certain that you did it you know did you steal the cookies no i didn't but they're so certain that you start to question yourself and who can blame the parents for panicking when the media coverage of this event literally was something like this authorities now believe that at least 60 young children were victimized and that the ultimate number could well be much greater. Those children, some of them as young as two years old, were photographed by the suspects. Kitty porn was the primary purpose for the alleged sexual abuse of children. Like, Jesus. That's the tone you're getting, you know? There's just not a lot of subtlety. Kitty porn. Kitty oh, porn God. was the motivation. It's like a little... A little tact, please. Yeah, not much mention of Satanism in the like media coverage of the event, but the parents were all in on this, and that's why Geraldo Rivera did give them a call in 1987 when he was doing his big blowout special on Satanism. And it's like, it's kind of awkward. It's, it's wedged in at the end of the show, like something they can tease to the whole time. They're like, here it is, ladies and gentlemen. We've got the McMartin parents, like they're bringing Ew. out the four tenors or something. Ugh. And um, they cut to them on a satellite feed in a room. And Geraldo uh, says, listen, what you guys want to get out there. Everybody knows that your kids were, were raped by these Jeez. teachers. Um, Come on, Geraldo. Well, act actually, he says, uh, we do. We are legally required to tell you that all but two of those suspects have been released recently. But two of them are still awaiting trial. And so they go. So goody for me. And he says, whichever one of you wants to talk, tell me why you believe this was satanic 
in nature, this abuse of your children. They started talking about robes and candles. They described an Episcopal church. And once they started narrowing that down, you could see that it had to be satanic. It's very important in satanic religions to have a priest because they truly do believe in power. The difference only between Catholicism and the Episcopal religion uh, is almost done. They both use wine, they both use bread and so on. The truth about Satanism is they truly do use blood and they mix it with urine and then they also use the real meat, the real flesh. This is what makes Satanism true and this is what 1,000 200 molested kids in the city of Manhattan Beach have told the sheriff's department and it's an outrage that we are where we are with this case and these poor unprotected kids that have, uh, that's a third of the school system in the city of Manhattan Beach has been molested. We have eight preschools closed here. This is the child molestation capital of the world. We have more preschools closed in this city than any city this side of Detroit and I'm not picking on Detroit. Sounds like you're picking on Detroit. So first of all, gross. Second of all, probably don't put the child molestation capital on the of the world on the town sign. No, no, not a great idea. Third, it sounds just like church. No, this guy, Carrie. <laughs> but maybe the kids were confused because we do say this is the blood of Christ. This is the body of Christ. Maybe they're confused by that. Hey, you, Carrie, you didn't see this guy, though. He was like a late middle-aged white guy with like a button-up. No, uh, I've seen this guy. <laughs> I've seen him. And he um, he's just clearly an expert on Satanism, to me. He told you all about the blood and the urine. I don't know why they keep bringing the pee-pee in here, but the blood and the flesh, it just sounds like... Oh, transubstan- transubstantiation of the flesh. There we go. It just sounds like that. Just sounds like a bunch of Catholics. Yeah, and what he didn't mention, actually, I think that guy is an Episcopal, because Catholic dogma says that that becomes literal. That is, yeah, it's literal. So, as a kid, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that these are Catholics or anything, but, like, you don't understand the difference. Yeah, they were just repeating fragments of things they had heard in other places. That's what it seems like to me. Yep. <sighs> The legacy of the McMartin trial uh, was felt for years to come, um, all through the 80s and the early 90s. Employees or entire daycares, schools, and babysitting services were accused of not just abusing children, but abusing them in satanic rituals that involved uh, sex with minors and human sacrifice. I don't yeah, know. We're not saying abuse didn't happen, but layering on the satanic thing is just a whole different can of worms. Absolutely. Uh, And here's a few very briefly, just to give you the... I want you to notice how similar these all are, I guess. Um, In 1985, Frank Fuster, who ran the Country Walk Babysitting Service, was convicted of 14 counts of abuse. The children in that case said he had led them in satanic rituals and had mutilated birds in front of them and said, this'll happen to your families if you tell anyone. Sounds familiar. Um, Frank went down mainly because his wife testified against him. Yikes. Although she later recanted her testimony on Frontline. Oh, boy. She told uh, Frontline on NBC that the police had put her in solitary confinement nude until she agreed to testify against her husband. Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, Fuster was convicted. Um, He is currently serving 165 years in prison. Fun fact, Janet Reno prosecuted that case, if you're interested. Wait, he's still in prison? Currently, right now. He's the last person technically imprisoned by the satanic panic of the 80s. But she recanted her testimony. 
on Dateline. That doesn't... But sh- couldn't she do that legally? It, w- why would he have no avenue to appeal after that? I don't know. She only said it to Dateline, not to the police. But you as... could still probably appeal after that. He probably should. As far as I know, he's currently serving a 165-year sentence in prison. Jeez, okay. I will say Fuster was previously convicted of manslaughter once and molesting a child once, so... Okay, maybe we could keep him in there. It might be okay for him to be in jail, I'm not sure. (laughs) I don't think he did the rituals, though. Yeah. Um, October 1984 in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, there was a Bernard Barron. You ever heard of this guy? He's had documentaries made about him and stuff. No. He was working at the Early Childhood Development Center as a 19-year-old openly gay male teacher. Pretty tough in 1984. Sure. Certainly makes you a target. And this started with a couple who had previously complained to the board of directors of the school that, quote, we don't want no homo teaching our kid. Um, They started the accusations in this case. And the day after they complained, the school held a puppet show, had the children do the whole puppet thing. Oh, God, the puppets. The net result was Brian was sentenced to three life terms in prison, but his lawyer was later found incompetent and he won an appeal with a new legal team, had a whole whole new trial in which he was very quickly uh, uh, cleared of all counts. Quickly is a relative term at this point because he was released in 2006, which means Bernard spent 21 years in prison for child molestation. My God. And in August 1991, because this did stretch into the 90s, in Austin, Texas, you had Fran and Dan Keller. Fun names. Uh, Their situation apparently started when a child, uh, Fran and Dan ran like a small daycare out of their house, you know, when people Mm -hmm. do that. Uh, This apparently started with a kid saying Dan had spanked him or her, Mm -hmm. um, but grew through that child's conversations with their parents into more. And um, more kids, when prompted, said the couple had served blood-laced Kool-Aid at the house and made them have videotaped sex with adults and other children, sometimes while wearing white robes. The children also said they were forced to participate in the killings of cats, dogs, and a crying baby. They said they had witnessed bodies buried in cemeteries, and once an adult passerby of the cemetery, while one of these burials was going on, had to be shot and then dismembered with a chainsaw. How does a kid... Describe dismemberment with a chainsaw. Honestly, because a lot of these sound so similar, it sounds like the adults questioning the kids have a very set image of, of what, what Satan s- satanic rituals are. It's got to be the blood. You got to have the pee-pee. You got to have people uh, cutting people up. And so they're leading them with these preconceived notions of what these black masses are. Yeah. Is what it feels like to me. I'm not saying no, no abuse happened, but between that and the fact that there's a lot of men involved in these, and I mean, obviously, there are terrible men out there, but they're also an easy target when you're in child care and things like that. It's a lot easier to accuse a man of doing abusive things to children. Um I, I there's was, almost like, a, like an expectation of it, unfortunately. When I was reading the testimony from the McMartin case... There was a mom who testified in court, and part of her court testimony was like, "Yeah, I thought it was. Ju- I just thought it was strange, you know, that um, that a man that age would want to work with children." Mm-hmm. It's like it's like a, a man being a nurse or whatever. Yeah. It's just one of those things where it's weird to people, so you you already have kind of a magnifying glass on you. Yeah, uh, the <sighs> the Kellers in that last case were given forty eight years in prison apiece, uh, although they were later released. 
when those because a lot of these cases were vacated or uh, appealed or or whatever and went away eventually, uh, except old Frank Fuster. Mm-hmm. So that is, I think, going to do it for this week, Caroline. We are. Um, that's the story of McMartin Preschool. Do you have any questions? I have so many questions, but none for you. <laughs> uh, questions <laughs> for the justice system. Why? As I shake my fist into the heavens. It's not the last we have for you on Satanism, though. Uh, this oh, is thank God going to be a whole literally like, again a whole month of this stuff. Cue the music. A whole month of this stuff. Next week, I'm going to go a little lighter. There won't be much child abuse discussed next week next <laughs> i hope so sean because those transcripts were tough next week is going to be a review of the satanic panic as it pertains to dungeons and dragons and heavy metal Ooh! so we will be revisiting that geraldo rivera special extensively there's a lot of good quotes i just love when he interviews ozzy you gotta hear when he interviews ozzy i do i do yes uh and then the week after that we're going to go back into very dark territory with the tale of the west memphis three mm-hmm. so if you this hey listen this week if you loved hearing about children getting hurt and horrible miscarriages of justice don't listen to our podcast well yeah we don't want to know you if you <laughs> enjoyed that. but more of that in a couple of weeks when we get to the west memphis three and finally um we're going to round it out with a discussion of pizzagate and the modern form that all of this satanic panic thinking uh, takes the because, baby eating blood rituals and all that because that's jazz. that's where we are now is it's like uh, government elites who are the the group that's uh, supposedly uh, doing it like we said folks this hasn't gone away whatsoever it's just evolved yep different day new panic still satanic the idea that people even think hillary clinton's religious like at all that's not even the question here it's the baby eating that really gets me sean <laughs> Doesn't it always? Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while. First in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. Hi, Tara. I've got a question for you. A hypothetical question. Here for it. If you and I were to make a podcast... Why would we make a podcast? Why does anyone make a podcast? Massive egos. Anyway. If you and I were to make a podcast... Right, so if we were to make a podcast where we ask each other hypothetical questions... (laughs) Wait, so not only is this a podcast about listening to an old married couple argue, it's explicitly about nonsense? That's right. Okay, I'm with you so far. So what would we call this hypothetical podcast? Well, I think we'd call it Unloaded Questions, a podcast about lighthearted musing and loving debate. And excellent action. Work. With your co-hosts, Nick and Tara. 
not be, why would anyone listen to a podcast like this? Well, maybe after a year locked inside their own houses, people want a break from heavy news or serial killers and just want to wonder how many Sasquatch eye it would take to successfully capture Nessie. I think it's Sasquatches. It's a Latin root. I'm pretty sure it's Sasquatch eye. Unloaded questions with your hosts, Nick and Tara, dropping Wednesday at a podcatcher near you. Hey Tara, what's a group of Sasquatch eye called? A foot clan. Oh, Nick, people are gonna have to hear this out more than once. Foot clan. Ugh. It's time for Lizard People Big World. We haven't done this segment in so long. Well, Sean, JFK Jr. was trending today on Twitter. Which <gasps> is, did he finally <laughs> reveal himself as Donald Trump or whatever it was? Okay, well, let's, let's get there. Hold on. It brings us back to the conspiracy that we took a little dive into way back in episode eight. That JFK Jr. is alive and the head of QAnon. That's right. Oh, my God. We can ask him about the uh, Pizzagate stuff in a couple weeks for that episode. Certainly. Comedy duo The Good Liars attended a Trump rally where they interviewed some folks that, well, really seemed to believe JFK Jr. would be coming back imminently. Trump Kennedy, 2021. What, what, what does that shirt mean? I think that JFK Jr. is still alive. The guy who died in the plane crash in the late 90s? You think he's still alive? I do. And he's, he's going to come back and be president with Trump in, this year? I hope so. But how would Trump become president this year? There would be a new election? There's a lot of things I think have happened, and there's some things I think I know, and a lot of things I don't. Okay. And one thing you, you do know is John F. Kennedy Jr. is still alive? That's what I believe. So. Huh. <laughs> the term JFK Jr. really took off on Twitter after the Good Liars Twitter account posted a video of them attempting to interview Vincent Fusca, who we told you back in our episode 8 news segment is a guy from Pittsburgh that a lot of QAnon followers think is really JFK Jr. in disguise. That's right. And have you seen pictures of Vinny Fusca? He looks like a Vinny. He doesn't look like a, a, a John F. Kennedy Jr. He looks like a guy who might uh, uh, be... A, he looks like a jailhouse confession rat. A little bit. It's JFK back. Jr. You're back. Holy shit, dude. No way. I'm, I'm all right, man. Uh, it is unbelievable I, I believe to this, see dude. you. I don't know how you, who you are, man. Oh, he's filming. We got to get going. Are you JFK Jr.? You, uh, yes or please no? tell us. Tell us. Tell us. How did you survive the plane crash? Or was it just faked? We got to get going. Just be honest. Be honest. Be honest. Be honest. Wink if you, twice if, you if you're JFK card, Jr. I'll be more than one, happy two. One, two. Yeah. One, two. See how he does dude, it? That was incredible. Can you believe that? No. Was it the same funny boys as the last thing? Yes. So they love just trolling QAnon. They, they had several videos from this rally. Yeah. As you may remember. It's JFK Jr. Was that Vinny Fusca they were talking to? <laughs> yes. As you may remember, JFK Jr. was supposed to reveal himself as alive and about to replace Mike Pence as Trump's VP, <laughs> first at a July 4th, 2019 rally. Never mind that he was a lifelong Democrat. <laughs> mm -hmm. Then again in October 2020, just before the election. Apparently, JFK Jr. really believes in saving the best for last, because it seems we've postponed the revelation to after a new president has been elected for uh, maximum drama, I guess. 
The target date this time, which again keeps moving more than the apocalypse, is August 13th, 2021. Well, it's exactly like the apocalypse, right? It's like every time you hit that date, you're like, oh shit, I read the scripture wrong again. Yeah, funny how that works. It's all real. It's definitely real, but I read it wrong again. Mark your calendars, folks. John John is back and ready to party. It's October? August. August. Shit, I was hoping he'd be back in time. Oh, wait, this August. Yeah. So he'll still be back in time for Halloween. For sure. But really, guys, uh, let the poor man rest in peace. And I'm not talking about Vinny Fusca. I'm talking about JFK Jr. <gasps> I've got a great costume that JFK could do for this year's Halloween. Great. Vinny Fusca. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary, and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. Yeah, and we're a network now, y'all. Make sure to check out our sister podcast on the Longboy Media Network, Unloaded Questions, that's hosted by our dear friends Nick and Tara Salisi. We have Love Affairs with Carrie McCabe coming soon. Listen, subscribe, and give them a great rating and review. Wait a little bit on on Love Affairs, but go and like Unloaded Questions on Facebook and follow at Unloaded Q for Twitter, Unloaded Questions on Instagram uh, for all your Longboy Media updates, because again... We are a network. Check it out on longboymedia.com. That's L-O-N-G-B-O-I media.com. Because we're idiots. And everywhere else, at Longboy Media. Again, boys with an I, because we're idiots. We could put that on a t-shirt. Lovely. Special thanks to our beloved patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, and our newest patron, Ryan Regan. The famous comedian? That's Brian Regan. Oh, I love Ryan Regan. Obviously. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. And you can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed terror takes center stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.